Hey everyone, today we wanted to offer up a special episode to all you choral music makers out there. As the choral community begins to consider a post-COVID return to singing, we wanted to take a moment to check in with frontline COVID physician and our good friend, Dr. Jeremy Faust. This episode was recorded on May 19th, 2021, and in it, we'll get caught up on the latest with regard to vaccinations, singer safety, and what it will take to return to singing in person. Dr. Faust is definitely someone we can trust as a credible source of information about COVID. He is an attending physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital's Department of Emergency Medicine in the Health Policy Division, as well as an instructor at Harvard Medical School. He is also editor-in-chief of Brief 19 and ASEP Now, associate editor of News and Perspectives for the Annals of Emergency Medicine, and has written for the New York Times, Slate, the New York Daily News, the Washington Post, and many others. Dr. Faust's writing has also appeared in peer-reviewed journals, including the Journal of the American Medical Association and Lancet Oncology. Dr. Faust is also particularly well-suited to join us on In Unison because he is a composer, conductor, and otherwise very accomplished musician. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. You also forgot my favorite accomplishment, which was that I was a co-founder of the International Orange Corral of San Francisco. Yes, indeed. indeed. Um, uh, indeed. That's one of my most proud accomplishments. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Welcome. So uh, let's start off with a quick update on COVID. Just give us a general summary, kind of where we are both nationally and globally with the pandemic. For the first time, the United States is behaving as we might expect, which is to do well. Um, We now see the light at the end of a tunnel. The vaccine story is the only success story that we have had. So now this, this pandemic has a light at the end of the tunnel locally, but then we have to turn our attention to the global concerns because we really aren't done with this until everyone is safe. So now you have a situation that started to emerge where it's vaccine haves and have nots. And we, again, are doing well with that. I think that we need to do better, but we also have to turn our attention overseas because this crisis can roar up at any, at any time if new variants emerge. And the way to prevent that is to suppress cases. And the way to do that is vaccines. Yeah. What about those variants? I, I saw a headline today that said California's variants versus the vaccines race. The vaccines are winning. And that seems like good news in California. But what about uh, other va- other variants that we're seeing uh, globally? The variant story is totally emerging and changing every day. But so far, the story has been the same. It's been that these variants have sometimes been more infectious, maybe a little um, more morbidity and mortality with a couple of them, but they haven't really changed the overall character of, of, the, of the pandemic in my mind, especially with regards to the vaccine. The, the biological assays, the tests in the laboratory absolutely show that some of these variants kind of wiggle away from the antibodies a little better. If you think of an antibody attacking a virus, it's sort of like a clasp, you know, two hands together. And the, the variants just kind of, of get out of that handshake a little more easily. But so far, even though we can detect that difference quantitatively in a laboratory test in, in these assays that test that, we haven't seen any real proof or any sign at all that any of the, of the variants change the overall success of the vaccine, which is to keep people from having to be hospitalized and keep people from, from dying. Certainly, some of the variants may cause a few more infections to occur, but if those infections end up being mild, we aren't so concerned as we would be if the variants were actually causing people who are vaccinated in large numbers to require hospitalizations or to die. We know of a few cases where that's occurred, but again, the the top line message is that the vaccines are still performing extremely well in turning COVID-19 from this menace to, for most people, either nothing or a barely a barely, barely noticeable bother. So I myself am uh, 
privileged and uh, lucky enough to say that I have been vaccinated myself. It was an incredibly easy process. I felt like uh, I followed the science, I got the news, and uh, it was an absolute snap. It was totally an easy thing to do. Um, but there does seem to be a lot of vaccine hesitancy out there. Some of it maybe is politically mo motivated, but there's also a lot of maybe misinformation and skepticism out there. Can you help dispel some of that misinformation for our li listeners? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there is a terminology that some people are using called vaccine deliberation, which is the idea of thinking about this as opposed to hesitancy, which kind of implies like maybe an anti-vax or that they're not sure. It's really people have questions. And a lot of those questions are really good ones. So I think one common misperception is that this was rushed, that we didn't do science. And in fact, really no um, steps were skipped. This is a technology that's been in development for a very long time. And quite frankly, the reason that we didn't have really good data on these mRNA vaccines, for example, is simply that we didn't have a, a very convenient virus to test them on. You need to you need a very impressive outbreak to show that. So I can't think of anything where people were willing to try this where you actually would have enough cases in the number of people who got the vaccine to compare to the number of cases in the people who didn't get the vaccine. Well, with COVID-19, the N, the number of people we could enroll was just endless, right? It was very easy to get a lot of people and it didn't take very long for the signals to emerge that people who got vaccinated didn't get sick and the people who um, did not get vaccinated, sorry, the people who got vaccinated did not get sick and the people who did um, get vaccinated did not get sick. So the, the only silver lining to the uncontrolled spread of COVID-19 was that we got quick, good data on how well these vaccines work, which would have taken years in other situations. So that wasn't a cut corner. It was just that we actually had the opportunity, unfortunately, to study this well quickly. Um, another thing that people worry about is the long-term effects of the, of the vaccines. And quite frankly, no one knows, right? Uh, we, we certainly don't know because we've only had the main vaccines for a little while. What I can say is we also don't know the long-term effects of COVID. We know the long-term effects of COVID for a lot of people is to be dead, and that's not a good outcome. We know that long COVID is certainly becoming a thing that people are worried about. And we also know that vaccines in general don't seem to have a very long tail of any side effects. Additionally, especially with the mRNA vaccines, mRNA is a very flimsy molecule. It doesn't last very long. So the idea that it would cause a long-term effect seems, seems pretty implausible. And the packaging in which it comes is also just a series of molecules that we're familiar with anyway. So my main thing is to tell people that the science is really good and that it's not the vaccine versus nothing. It's the vaccine versus COVID. And I have seen COVID many times. You don't want it. Oh, can I add one thing about that? Please. Um, vaccine deliberation and hesitancy is kind of like cancer. It's like not one disease. It's actually a conglomeration of problems. So you can't just solve it with one thing. So there's some vaccine hesitancy or deliberation that comes from political line of thinking. They've bought into a certain line of thinking. And that's going to be really difficult to, to address. But other people may have vaccine deliberation because there's mistrust for the science community in general. So people will refer to the fact that in the past there have been medical studies done in the United States that were really deplorable, that, you know, the Tuskegee experiments. And so people will have some skepticism about the scientific community that's earned by us. You know, there's been, there's a legacy that we need to confront. So the, there's, there's many different reasons. So the, the idea that you can just kind of solve it with one thing. It's, it's not quite correct. You, you would, um, and you guys didn't suggest that, but I'm just, I'm responding to what I hear all the time. Um, access is a big, huge deal. So yes, one way to make this better is access. Another way to make this work is to make people feel like they'll be supported with the side effects so they can get paid sick leave. So they don't have to make a sacrifice that they can't afford to make to get it. Another one is to really, um, understand what's driving any sort of philosophical, uh, thing. For some people, it's really about carrot and stick. So, okay, fine. I'll get the vaccine if that means I don't have to wear a mask. So whatever it is, you have to dig in to find out what, what it is. And then you can hopefully approach that person with the information that they need to make a better choice. What about how long immunity lasts once you've gotten the vaccine? Do we have data about that? We don't have much. We keep on hearing that the people who are, were vaccinated during the trials haven't had bread breakthrough cases or breakthrough serious cases, right? So now we've had people who are enrolled in the trials, thousands and thousands of people who got uh, one of the vaccines middle of last year, 
and we haven't heard that those folks are dropping like flies or anything. So there, there are follow-up antibody tests, which again, antibody tests and titers give you a, a number, but it doesn't tell you what that number means, right? So you can have a 10% drop in your titers or a 50% drop in your titers, and you could still have 99% of, of the protection. We don't know. So we're going to see over time. So far, I have yet to really have any pause. Every day that goes by, it's another day where we have immunity. There are some experts who think we'll never need a booster, and there are other experts who think we will. I think that no one knows. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that we're we're concerned about and that you've touched upon is um, it, it, I think you have a very uh, interesting perspective because as a as a doctor, you certainly get to have these one-on-one with conversations with folks and patients and people that have concerns, and they can bring you those things. And you probably are uniquely positioned uh, to help dispel any myths or misinformation that, that folks have. What are your thoughts about what we as individuals can do to help combat misinformation? Well, I think one thing we can do is to not lecture people. It certainly, you know, it feels good, but it doesn't necessarily help anything. Um, but always to one thing I try to do is to express my concerns. Like, look, I'm really worried um, that something bad's going to happen, and here's why I'm worried. Like, um, or, or just find out what it would take. Um, there, there is the movable middle. There's the idea of people who just aren't sure and that hearing, talking it through, and if you happen to be armed with a bunch of statistics, you can kind of help them with that, or you can refer them to any resource like, you know, Brief 19 or any like really good medical resources. Um, the movable middle is really an opportunity for us to just meet our colleagues, friends, family, whatever, where they are, and just talk it through. If you, if you find someone who's just completely against it, they're a conspiracy theorist, or they start talking nonsense in your direction, I generally find that um, th- there's there's not a, much of a point in the moment. And so I don't try to necessarily move the needle. But what I do try to do in those situations is to show that I'm listening, because they may not listen to me today. But if they think that I'm listening to them today, they might listen to me later. So there's a little bit of like, a, let me use this opportunity to at least establish a, a baseline that I'm listening. And then later on, that there could be a conversation. Pretty unusual that it leads to anything, but that's just my approach. You're going to end up just if you're getting if you're getting in a shouting match or you know your you resistance just disengage because there's it's just it's impossible. But um, most people, if you just ask them what they're worried about or what they're thinking about, then again you can sort of either offer any information you have or invalidate their concerns or say, oh, let me think about that. Let me, let me, let me ask somebody and refer them to something. So I think one of the great things that I learned in coming out of medical school is that it's like, you don't want to say, oh, I'm a doctor. I know all this stuff and you don't know anything. Let me just tell you what I think. That doesn't get you very far. What, 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 what would get you a lot farther is, okay, look, I'm a doctor. Um, here's, here's the information that I have and let's, let's match them with your values and figure out what the right fit is. So there really is, I think there is a correct answer. I think you should be vaccinated. But in many, many medical situations, there aren't, there is not one correct answer. And so I'm used to that kind of conversation. And so I think that I've learned that the sort of, um, you know, the conductor is always right aspect uh, doesn't necessarily translate well uh, to like conversations regarding medical choices. It's an interesting choice of words, actually, because I think um, you you touch upon something that um, many of us may be experiencing, which is the dynamics, the interpersonal dynamics you're describing are ones where there are peer relationships. But sometimes the dynamics of power and leadership structures can affect the way misinformation is spread um, and can sometimes have an outsized uh, influence. Um, What do you do when you're faced with a situation like that where, let's say, I mean, you brought up the conductor analogy or the conductor metaphor, but that may actually be quite literal, right? You may have a conductor or a choir conductor who is saying, uh, hey, I don't believe in any of this science at all. I think that, you know, the vaccines are terrible and they're going to give you autism or whatever. I mean, who knows? I mean, what do you do when you're faced with a leadership that's caught in a web of misinformation and science denial? Whose responsibility is it to, to help that out? What do you do? I think we're going to confront this in the coming months, right? We've never really had to deal with this before. Um, my sense is that um, these kinds of problems, when they occur, are going to be hashed out um, within the organizational structure of those organizations. In other words, if, if a singer doesn't feel safe or uh, going to rehearsal, or if they feel like the environment is toxic for any reason, um, they, you know, whether it's a union job and they go to the union representative or whether it's a volunteer gig like International Orange and they just want to go to like, you know, whatever representatives the singers have within the board structure or within any, any organizational structure there may be. I think that that's the place, that's the time when a really solid 
organizational structure where people's concerns can be heard outside of the rehearsal environment can be can be entertained and can be pursued because you just cannot have a situation in which people don't feel safe or they don't feel even welcome in a way. So I I anticipate that there will be in a few cases some difficult conversations, but sort of not in the artistic space. The, the goal is that by the time you get to the artistic music making moment, that all that's been worked out. You can't have it plan out when you're trying to like learn the Brahms Requiem. <laughs> right. Very true. Yeah. I mean, we're all taking those steps. I mean, speaking of which, maybe Zane, you can give us a little overview of what we've been doing here, but uh, IOC is indeed trying to get back together in relatively short order. The Golden Gate Men's Chorus has also announced that starting on August 3rd, we're going to be coming back to rehearsals. And we've had a bit of a process of getting there, of engaging with the leadership and the membership of the group to openly have this conversation. Um, Zane, maybe some you could tell some of the details of what IOC is doing as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, one of the most important things for me as a leader is to make sure that, the, as Jeremy just said, make sure the singers feel safe and that they feel like, like coming to rehearsal is not a risk uh, for them health-wise. So, you know, we're beginning by survey, surveying all the singers and um, asking them to tell us whether or not they're vaccinated and uh, if they plan to be vaccinated and when they will be fully vaccinated and if they would be willing to prove that they're vaccinated. And to be perfectly honest, I have no qualms about requiring that every member prove that they're vaccinated because that's what we're seeing you know, from the CDC, from the state, the city of San Francisco is that, you know, if you're fully vaccinated, it's safe to sing together. And that's what we're seeing. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But um, that's that's what we're doing is we're just trying to get everybody to to put that information out there so that we can feel safe as an organization and as an ensemble to get together and be um, in person. And I think that's probably the right way of going about it. But there are a few people who are kind of holdouts a little risk you know, there's there's a little bit of a privacy thing too that for some reason that's come up do you have you seen any of that jeremy where people are like oh i don't want to it's it's a privacy thing i don't want to talk about my vaccine status mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um well there is the medical legal perspective as a physician for me so i have to with my patients there is a privacy issue about discussing my patients but i but when i put on the hat of like running a an organization a private organization or nonprofit organization, like you, my understanding of the law is you have the right to associate with whom you like to or not like to. And especially with regards to safety, it's, I don't sense that there's a legal issue of saying to somebody, look, we're going to require X, Y, or Z. Um, the same way that, you know, lots of people would, uh, schools would say, we, we won't let you come in if you don't have your vaccines. Um, they have to volunteer that to the schools. They have to give that information to the schools. I say volunteer, they have to give it. Mm -hmm. um, so the, yeah, there's a, there's the privacy concerns about uh, our medical information. I would, I would mention though, that medical privacy is not a universal thing. And even HIPAA, which is this law that helps us, um, you know, keep information um, secure and allows uh, healthcare providers to communicate with each other securely and uh, and safely, but also um, protects patients and their rights, um, is not an absolute universal thing. So, for example, in, in cases of emergency, uh, HIPAA will be suspended um, because you want to be able to communicate safely what's going on. So, and for example, a mass casualty situation, you can't have doctors saying, I can't tell you because literally then police officers and public health officials and whoever else, even just families trying to find out where their loved ones are would just be like completely screwed. Um, so the, the idea of, of medical privacy is a really important one, but actually we forget to balance it against public needs sometimes. So that the classic example is, you know, your kindergartners just have to have their vaccines to get started in school. That's just a thing. And so I suspect the same thing is going to be true here, especially with private organizations, institutions. There could be some kind of legal uh, battle to be had, and I'm not sure how it'll play out among like um, federal agencies, government agencies requiring something in a in a vaccine that is FDA authorized, but not FDA approved. So we have an emergency authorization as opposed to a full approval. And there could be some legal battles there, but that's going to be in public um, accommodations, you know, whether or not you could, you know, work for the government or that kind of thing. As, re as regarding this, I think that you're probably okay. Yeah. So we sort of described what both of our groups are doing here, the GGMC, the IOC, IOCSF as well. And 
lots of other choirs are getting back to, to normal, air quotes. Um, how are we doing? Any, anything else you would recommend or, or say, hey, think about this as you're thinking about getting back together? The CDC guidance is, is pretty clear. If, if everyone's vaccinated, everyone can be in the room without a mask. That, that's, that seems to be um, what we're dealing with. Um, to me, the question is, how will we know if something changes? How will we know if that's no longer the case? What if breakthrough cases are occurring? What if the, the vaccines are turning out to be only 80% effective against a severe disease instead of 95 or whatever, 100%? Then we're going to be in a different situation, and I can't get ahead of that just yet. What I'll tell you is you'll know that there's a problem if Anthony Fauci starts wearing a mask indoors again. If that happens again, I, I, that's a pretty good bellwether, like, or somebody like that. So people who have been willing to go with the science, who have put the mask on when the mask science said we needed to, and who took them off when it looked like it was okay to do so. So that, that sort of, you can read these like headlines and oh, the breakthrough cases and all this, but you'll know because people like me will be saying uh, it, it's a problem, folks. Um, the, what I think is actually really interesting in general is, is the idea of going forward with making music in person together. Like we're all going to do it. And whether it's COVID or not, I just, one thing I really hope happens is from now on, if people are sick, they don't have to come to rehearsal when they're sick, but they could stay home and watch on Zoom. I'm excited for people to watch rehearsal on Zoom and not have to like give them the notes from rehearsal and you know they're never going to make it into their score. Like I love the idea that like I I'm contagious, I don't feel well, great. You can watch it on Zoom and your scores will be out and great. So to me, it's like the long-term uh, implication is like we're going to have a we're going to have healthier choirs and we're going to have choirs that even in a sick year still manage to like not uh, lose too many sick days. That's my that's my pie in the sky hope. Yeah, that's something that I have in the back of my mind as something to incorporate as we move forward is just set up a, a nice microphone and a computer and just stream the rehearsal. So that way, anyone who can't come because of whatever reason, because they're ill or or even if they're out of town, they can watch the rehearsal after the fact and not have lost that rehearsal time. And I think that's going to be super valuable, something we definitely learned from this um, from this pandemic. Um, let's just take a little break from the conversation to hear one of Jeremy's compositions. This is Adam Leigh Bounden, performed back in 2015 by the International Orange Chorale of San Francisco. Um, I wanted, since we keep talking about wearing masks, there was this one study that I did want to, to bring up with you that uh, <clears throat> I came across through social media sharing, of course. And the study's conclusion was that wearing a mask was uh, a bad thing for your voice, that it actually hurts your voice. And I thought that was, well, my immediate reaction was that's ridiculous. But I thought uh, I would I would see if you had seen that study and what your thoughts were about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did see that study. And let's contextualize this. Um, first of all, there's a subset of people who have the wacky idea that masks are harmful in general, that if you wear a mask that you could have buildup of carbon dioxide or that you could be inhaling bacteria in and out too much. Okay, surgeons operate for 12 hours in a row with masks on. They're not like becoming like 
their, their, their carbon dioxide levels don't rise to the point where they're acting all crazy. Um, and yes, you probably optimally, we should not have been saying to people, you need to go like running with a mask on because eventually you are sort of in what you, you want to exhale, like the junk that comes into your, into your upper airways. So, but for the most part, like wearing a mask is, well, no, it is totally safe. It has no, it has no implication on oxygenation. And so for the past year, it's just been fascinating to watch people who are not afraid of COVID-19 and they should be, be afraid of masks and they shouldn't be. So it's been a very strange sort of counterintuitive thing. The same people who are advocating for the things that will stop this virus staying apart are actually the same ones who are now advocating for the thing that will stop this virus, the vaccine. It's like, it's, it's like a, cl- a broken clock is like right twice a day, but some of these jerks like end up being wrong more than that. Um, so that's the context. But the, 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 the issue with the study you mentioned, which unlike a lot of garbage studies that, gets, that get um, bandied about on social media, this study was actually in a reputable journal. So you have to look carefully at what it said. And that doesn't mean that it's true per se, but it means that it's not complete junk science. However, uh, let's just say a few things. They look, these were looking at healthcare workers who wore masks all the time while treating patients in the hospital. So for like eight, 10, 12 hours a day, and they are like yelling at patients who are like hard of hearing part of the time, who are themselves wearing masks. There's sometimes there's suction in the room, there's oxygen, they're raising their voices, and they're asking these people, by the way, how's your voice doing now that you're wearing masks 10, 12 hours a day? And it turns out that one thing you need to do to know that information is to compare that to something. Like, oh, to people who aren't wearing masks or to people who were, you know, how they, we surveyed them before the mask mandate and during the mask mandate. This study had no control group. It just reports a bunch of people saying, you know, yeah, actually wearing a mask does make my voice kind of hurt at the end of the day. If you look at the scoring system that they use, this is a voice, a voice health index, the VHI. It's this it's questionnaire. And some of the questions are like things like, sometimes people have trouble hearing me speak. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. But occasionally I look, I'm a healthcare provider. I've been in the hospital where I'm wearing an N95 mask and the patients are like, I'm having trouble hearing you doc. I'm like, sorry, let me just, you know, come closer, raise my voice. So yeah, at the end of a long day of a shift, like, yeah, it felt, it felt like I used my, my voice that day. I felt that way after choral rehearsals. Sometimes. I was just going to say at the end of a <laughs> choir rehearsal, like a three hardcore three hour rehearsal, my, my voice is tired. <laughs> I mean, when I'm at like my peak vocal shape, and what I mean by that is I'm using my voice a lot vocally, uh, chorally, and my technique is really good. Like I can actually not be tired after long rehearsals, but it's pretty unusual. Usually I'll feel some degree of that. And it's completely what we call self-limited. It goes away. So uh, for this study to be weaponized as proof that masks are harmful to singers, it, 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 this, this study did not study singers. It did not study people in a regular situation. It did not have a control group and it didn't have an outcome that is meaningful for singers. So it wasn't like, you know, they tested a bunch of singers and it's like, oh, you know, after I wore the mask, I just, you know, the, the Juilliard judging said I was worse, like, you know, or I couldn't practice as long. No, no it's just a complete, it, it, it's a misapplication of a study that, that basically has no action item for us to do. Like, I can't think of what the action item is in the, even in the healthcare setting other than vaccinate. Okay. Vaccinate. Although even in that case, I can't look, I'm not wearing a mask in most situations anymore. But I mean, let's be honest, at work I am, when I see patients I am. So I don't even know what that study can really help anyone do, but I did see it get weaponized um, by um, anti-mask zealots. And uh, that was not surprising, but disappointing. Um, You mentioned that this study in particular was in a reputable journal, and yet it still is getting twisted and used to state something that's not true. Um, And, you know, I, I... consider myself a, a skeptic, um, you know, a, and by that, I mean a person that follows science and is about using rationale and thinking critically about the things that I see and hear. But yet, even so, as I look through news sources and my Apple news feed or wherever it is that I'm looking at the news, there's just so much out there. And it seems like there's so many different sources of information. And 
it's hard to know what to trust because even when you see something from a reputable journal, a peer reviewed journal, it still may not have the implications that it's being reported to have. And so what, what are your suggestions for us lay people, us, us, those of us who are not medical uh, professionals, you know, where, where's the best place to find the most concise information? Well, there's no one source, but what I, one thing that I think is really important is to realize that there are, you know, thousands and thousands of medical journals and even the top 5% of the most prestigious ones, there's still so many of those. And at every major medical center, there are hundreds and thousands, if not thousands of professionals associated with those places. So you can have one person who has really left the, their cognitive sort of <laughs> zenith behind, if you will. You can have one person who has just gone off the rails um, at Stanford or Harvard and Johns Hopkins or wherever, and suddenly someone's going to say, oh, look, a very respected Johns Hopkins uh, guy said this. It's like, well, yeah, but 99.9% .9 of that person's colleague says the other thing. They might be right. Let's find out. Take a look. Oh, look, they're wrong. That's usually the story. Um, it's very, very rare that when one of, when my, one of my colleagues, for example, here um, at, at Brigham and at Harvard says something completely wrong, that, that, that they're right and the rest of us are wrong. It, it can happen, but it's, I haven't seen it much in COVID. For the most part, it's just been people who have, um, whose marbles are not intact, unfortunately. The, I don't know, how do you tell that? I, I can't, it's hard for me to say, but other than to say, does this match with other things, with other, with other information? Um there's a little bit of a so what factor that you could, for example, um, the so what factor is even if what this person says is even if what this headline or study says is true, so what, then what? So for example, um, you know, you hear about the variants, oh my God, the variants, you know, decrease the vaccine's affinity for the binding by 50%. So what? Does it mean that there's 50% people are now going to get sick who aren't going to get sick? Absolutely not. Don't, doesn't mean that. Right. So it's very the, these headlines are, are unfortunately driven to, to drive clicks, written to drive clicks. And so I just say, you know, never trust one thing, get a preponderance of things um, and read, read carefully. And then, of course, um, over time, you, you can understand that some outlets are better than others. But even so, look, The New York Times, my wife writes for The New York Times. I've written for The New York Times. I love The New York Times. There's a couple of writers of The New York Times who occasionally get something wrong. It makes my head explode. So even your trusted sources, like just never turn off your brain. Like you, at the end of the day, like you are um, the only person who can actually make those calls. But, you know, fortunately, we're all connected and you can reach out to experts. So um, a little unsatisfying satisfying of an answer, but, it, it, <laughs> but it's a huge problem. And, and maybe when in doubt, you know, talk to a healthcare professional, talk to your doctor, talk to someone you have a long history with who you trust, perhaps. Oh, um, I love that. Who's can I, far yeah. more, who's far more... Uh, uh, knowledgeable. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just, yeah. Let, 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 let me dig to that for a second because wow, is expertise not a transferable skill? In other words, if you are the world's leading constitutional law scholar and you would like know more about like the first amendment and the fifth amendment, and the 14th amendment than anybody else, that does not mean that you can read 10 COVID papers and be a COVID expert. And now I'm not saying that that person is wrong about COVID. If, if, but if they are, if if they're, if, if a person like that is going on, is, is saying stuff about COVID that is completely um, counter to what really intelligent people in that space are saying, then guess what? It's 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 uh, they're not like the outsider coming in to like fix medicine, right? Like the you know I, I'll just say like um, you know Nate Silver, he's great at polling, but he doesn't know how to read epi epidemiological studies. But he thinks he does because he thinks he knows data but he actually doesn't know how to read medical data. And so therefore he gets it right a, a bunch of the times. And then when he gets it wrong, he's like, actually doesn't know that. So the expertise of non-transferable is a huge, huge thing. I, you know, it, it makes me, it makes my blood boil just a touch when people are like, I know a lot about medicine because I read 10 papers or because I was, you know, whatever, a bio major or, a, yeah. you know, whatever. I mean, look, I don't know what I know because I went to medical school. I know what I know because I study like, public health all the time and I, and I, and I spend time in this space. So it's like, it's, it's frustrating sometimes when, when to your point, Giacomo, it's like um, this sort of like transferable expertise thing. It's like, it's not, it's, 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 it's pretty bad juju. Yeah. That plays into the whole Dunning-Kruger effect too, right? Isn't that absolutely. Part of that? Yeah, absolutely. So if I can, 
maybe summarize what you what your advice is for us to uh, be able to seek out you know good information is that we should put our thinking caps on and be critical thinkers and not trust just any one source and always try to find um, you know multiple examples of information but the biggest takeaway that I just got from you is that we really need to be careful and cautious and this is the problem with social media being the source of information for so many people is that it's like headline after headline after headline and that's the only thing that folks read sometimes and they just scroll through their feed and they like just see that headline oh new study shows this well that's the truth and that's the biggest thing that i think we should be encouraging our listeners and everybody out there to do is to not just read the headline because the headline is so often developed or designed to be clickbait it's designed to be a, a thing to click on yep and when in and when in doubt, talk to a healthcare professional. Yeah. By the way, Zane, I gotta hire you as like my PR guy. Like I'm starting this new project and it literally like the, the description of it is like we go beyond health headlines. And it's the idea is here's not only what you need to know, but how we know that and how yeah. we don't know that. So one of the things that I think you just said was so important is like, science says this, studies show that, this proves this. It's like, well, actually, that's rarely the case. Usually it's a, a, some study in the media is one piece of data and what's really undermined or downplayed is how that piece of information was actually found. And unfortunately, when you dig into that, you find out that there's probably some grain of truth to it in some angle, but it's actually what we really know is a lot less than what's being suggested. So how we know what we know is actually such an important thing. And this is another reason why like expertise is so hard in, in my space. Like most people who would read like a study in a medical journal They'll skip the part that's the boring part, which is the method section. Like, we did this. Here's what we did. We used this approach and this statistical thing, and we did that. It's like, that's the part where they tell you if it's good or not. And so if you're unable to assess the difference between, like, whether they did, like, a year over a year difference in difference versus a seasonal arima versus a Poisson prog- um, you know, um, uh, progression and uh, projection, it, it's not just jargon. It's whether or not people are talking in the same language and saying, oh, wait, I know how rigorous this was. And so most people who are doing this like kind of sharing of stuff, they have no idea how to assess that. Let's talk a little bit about some music real quick. Um, so you just recently sent me a score for a piece of music that you wrote, which uh, is called Winter is Past, Song of Songs setting for cello and chorus. And uh, it's absolutely lovely. And you had some Harvard doctors and scientists record it. Um, and the purpose of the piece is for the Harvard commencement, which is next month. So is the performance going to be a live performance? Or are you just going to play that recording that y'all made? So I'll tell you what happened. Um, the Harvard University um, reached out to me because I, I conduct this um, choir of doctors, nurses, students, researchers, anyone who is in sort of health. We have like social workers. It's an amazing group, 70, 80 singers. What's the name of the group? The Longwood Chorus. Thank you. Um, and they they knew about us and they said, look, for graduation, we would love to have like a short piece by like a few of your singers or and maybe a few people who, who you haven't worked with before. But they asked me to put together like a small group and this would be recorded, filmed and streamed during the Harvard main commencement. So this is like a lot of people. So um, they said, what do you want to perform? By the way, you know, it has to sort of be vetted at the top levels. Like it has to please everybody in terms of like, it can't be too religious. It can't be too political. It has to sort of thread this needle. It's impossible to thread. Can you imagine? Um, and I started looking around for pieces and I just couldn't find anything. Yeah. You reached out to me. <laughs> you were like, I Hey, did, Zig, you got some ideas. And I was like, Oof, boy. Right. I don't it's know. Hard needle thread. Yeah, it is. So I actually was thinking about that text, which is from the Song of Songs, which is, yes, it's a religious text, but it's pretty like non-religious as, as religious texts go. And I actually thought of it because of um, an International Orange Connection, the, the piece Nigra Sum by Cole Thomson Reedus was written, um, actually not for International Orange, but it was uh, one of the, I think the second performance ever of that piece was at International Orange's like first ever concert. And Cole wrote this piece, Nigra um, Sum, which is um, in which he has Latin and English um, settings of Song of Songs. And one of the lines it, that he set was this, this paragraph that, that I was like, oh, that'd be perfect for this, which is, um, for behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The, the, um, the flowers appear on the earth. The time, for, the time of the singing has come. 
And I thought, you know, for this moment, like where we have this like intense sadness, but also this moment of optimism, that's like a great kind of paragraph. So thank you, you know, International Orange and Coal for planting that seed. And so I asked them if I could write something and, and Harvard said, yeah, you can, but you're going to have to approve it. So I had to go write it and make like a demo and send it to them. And it was, it was actually almost like working in theater. They, they, they sent back like, like edits and like requests and changes to be made. And I was like, that's annoying, but actually they were right because they wanted a certain feeling. Um, so it's actually interesting to have to, as a composer to actually have to answer to that kind of thing the way we're not used to, we're sort of like, or, or tours. Right. Um, <laughs> but they, they were right. You know, the revision is snappier and, um, and, and gets there quicker. Um, and actually I added some stuff that, um, I omitted from the original intentionally. I was like, oh, this, the, the ear will hear that, you know, the ear will in, interpolate that. And, uh, and then I was like, no, I need to actually be explicit. So I wrote the thing and then they said, sure, do it. So then we were, we recorded it. We rehearsed, um, this is 10 singers in a large room. Everybody was vaccinated at that point. Um, the, the mass, um, rules were changing. So we were like in a big, huge room, like eight feet apart, everyone wearing masks in the rehearsal. And then in the recording, it was an even bigger space, but for, for takes, we actually took the masks off. Um, and then we filmed it outdoors um, in the be beautiful Harvard Medical School um, quad, just beautiful. And they're going to um, apparently take all that and mash it up into like this montage that's going to play um, at the graduation. So it was, oh man, it felt so good to be sing singing and conducting again. I have to tell you, it was seriously the greatest. I, you're in for some fun. I'm so jealous right now. <laughs> that yeah. just sounds oh so we're, wonderful. We're all beaming. Yeah, I want to do that. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, that experience must have been so just wonderful for you to be able to be in front of singers and have your music performed. And, oh, God. It was great. And I will say this as well. I wrote this piece um, in early April. And I was at the end of a bunch of research um, in my medical research where I was trying to tie a bunch of things together. And it was just sort of a period where I was slogging through a bunch of stuff that I'd already put together. It wasn't anything new intellectual work, but it was like, just let's, let's get this all together. And I hadn't written music in a while. And I noticed like after I finished that piece, the next three or four weeks after that, I have had this like creative explosion in my research. It has been, I have made these kind of connections that have been staring me in the face that that should have been staring me in the face for months. And I'm proud of them. Like, I'm like, Oh, no one's ever seen this before. Oh, no one. And I check it. You know, I go to researchers, my mentors like, Nope, that's new. And I swear to you, it's because I wrote that piece. It's because when you write music, you solve problems, you look at things from different perspectives, you open your mind. Like if there's like a ringing endorsement to be had for like a liberal arts education, I think I just lived it because writing that piece made me a better scientist. Fantastic. Wow. What a great, that's, that seems like a good sentiment um, to, to, to wind up on and to end up on here. Um, so we can sing together now. And if we're, if we're vaccinated, right, is that, that's true? Absolutely. I'm ready for it. I'm so excited about that. And earlier we talked quickly about, you know, we should keep an eye on, on Dr. Fauci. If he starts wearing a mask again, we should be, uh, we should be considering what the implications are of that. But are, are there any other things that uh, core organizations you think should be considering as we get back to resuming regular activity? There are a few things. I think that we, first of all, should start to always have contingency plans. San Francisco is a great situation. I, as we, I said this last summer to you guys, I think, in other settings. I don't think we ever needed to stop singing outdoors. Like, we could have had rehearsals outdoors, like, you know, six feet apart on a yoga mat, whatever it was going to be. Um, and we could have kept doing this. I think the fact that we shut down the arts for a year, including outdoors, was unnecessary. At first, we didn't know, but I think we knew, like, kind of fairly early on that outdoors was going to be okay. The problem was we had such an explosive crisis on our hands that there was no time for nuance, mm -hmm. right? And so I wasn't going to be the guy to fight that battle, and I think many people felt the same way. But going forward, you know, if there is something that kind of comes back and rears its head, I think that with this time around, people, A, will have less appetite for like kind of extreme restrictions. And B, I think we know it's not entirely necessary. So I think that planning for, okay, well, up until November in San Francisco, you could do outdoors, heat lamps, whatever it's going to take. Um, what about rapid testing? I think that rapid testing could have saved hundreds of thousands of lives in the United States and could have kept organizations safely open, such as even, even coral groups. Uh, if you had an outbreak in rapid testing and masks, um, you could do a short-term fix. So what I'd say is at the moment, it's like, I feel like now is a very safe time. Like if everyone's vaccinated and we know the variants aren't breaking through, 
like now's a great time. But think, but I would say to organizations, think ahead. What if there is a little bit of a worsening situation? What's your plan for that? Part of that can be outdoors. Part of that can be, you know, using masks. Part of that can be rapid testing. So it's um, think ahead because, you know, you can't plan for everything, but you can plan for some of the stuff. And I, if we do have another crisis that's COVID related or a non-COVID thing, I very much hope that we don't have to have another year of, of not making art. So I think that that can be avoided if we do the right things. Yeah, and I think it's uh, I think it uh, uh, it's worth stating that boy, what a difference the right leadership makes. You know, just hearkening back to what we were talking about before, it feels great to feel like science is back at the at the helm, and that mm. we're really letting that sort of lead what we're doing as a country, and and hopefully more folks are or listening there. Can I just, yes. Can I just tell you like the difference is so palpable for me. Like I'm, I'm this little like internecine fight with um, a few people about some data and the CDC has this thing where they like, don't even realize it, but they contradict themselves. They have like one group says this at the CDC, another says the other. And I went to them and I said, folks, there's a contradiction in your own data from two different centers. And it matters. Like there's a, there's a moment where it didn't matter before, but now it matters. And their answer is, Oh yeah, you know what? We should we should look into that. That's a problem. You know, I'm not sure what they're going to do about it, but the point is that their the responsiveness was like, huh, yeah, this could have an, an issue. There's a conversation to be had. Like, I don't know what the outcome of that conversation is going to be, but there is an actual conversation, which is so refreshing. I can't even begin to tell you. <laughs> yeah, there isn't somebody just standing up with their fingers in their ears, going la la la. I can't hear yeah. you. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, it's a huge yeah. difference. Well, Jeremy, we really appreciate you taking some time out of your your busy schedule to uh, to chat with us, and for taking some time out of your busy schedule to write some new music. and And uh, and I think that there's a possibility we might find that piece in front of uh, the International Orange Corral in the future as well. So, cool, man! I'll send you guys the uh, the the, the uh, montage video when it's. I ready. love it. Can't wait to see it. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well. You uh, take care of yourself, and uh, we'll we'll have you back on again in the future when we have more stuff to talk about. All right, Zane, Giacomo, you guys are awesome. International Orange, love you all. I love the community. Proud to be part of it. Have a good one. All right. Take care. Bye, Jeremy. Let's finish off today's special episode with one more of Jeremy's choral works. Here is Into the Wind, a setting of an original text written by one of Jeremy's longtime collaborators, Philip Littell, and performed in 2014 by the International Orange Chorale of San Francisco.
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the In Unison Podcast. Be sure to check out episode extras and subscribe at inunisonpodcast.com. You can follow us on all social media at inunisonpod. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to let us know what you think. Pianos tuned by Chorus Dolores, who thinks a brilliant title for an early music concert would be Where's Jez Waldo? <laughs>